Hi, I'm David Zichterman, the pastor of Emden CRC. This will be a sermon on 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 16, and Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism, dealing with the Sixth Commandment. The Sixth Commandment states, You shall not murder. Now a reading from 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Namboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him, In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now a reading from Lord's Day 40 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is God's will for you in the Sixth Commandment? I am not to belittle, hate, insult or kill my neighbor, not by my thoughts, my words, my look or gesture, and certainly not by actual deeds, and I am not to be party to this in others, rather I am to put away all desire for revenge. I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself either. Prevention of murder is also why government is armed with the sword. Does this commandment refer only to murder? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. 
In God's sight, all such are disguised forms of murder. Is it enough, then, that we do not murder our neighbor in any such way? No, by condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. The Catechism reminds us that more than not killing is required in the Sixth Commandment. Any action that expresses envy, hatred, anger, and vindictiveness is also forbidden. Vindictiveness, by the way, I had to look this up, is having a desire for revenge. In God's sight, any action arising from these, from envy, hatred, anger, and revenge, count as murder. This broadens the scope of this commandment considerably. So not only is murder forbidden, but this command also forbids belittling, that is, mocking, in my mind through my thoughts, with my mouth through my words, with my face through my looks or gesture. When we mock, we deny that person the dignity, the dignity that they deserve as an image bearer of God. By mocking, we break the sixth commandment. This command also forbids hating through my thoughts, words, looks, or gestures. When we hate, we wish not for a person's good, but for their bad. When we hate, we break this command. This command also forbids insulting our neighbor through thought, word, look, or gesture. We have become a society that depends on insults. Rather than engage in civil discourse, we prefer insulting, the quick jab, the well-timed put-down. The presidential debate, unfortunately, was Exhibit A in this department. If we took delight in any of the insults uttered, we broke this command. We have murdered in our heart. These activities all stem from the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, and revenge. These roots, if left unchecked, can make us do awful things. But the roots themselves, as the Catechism says, are all disguised forms of murder. This is illustrated in the French movie Jean de Florette. Scott Jose summarizes this movie, writing, The title character of Jean is an endearing man, possessed of a generous, outgoing, and optimistic spirit. Jean is also a hunchback with all the attendant physical limitations that come with that difficulty. As the film opens, Jean learns that he has inherited a large plot of land in the French in the French countryside. He has been a city slicker his whole life, but decides that it's time to get back to nature. So he moves his wife and daughter to the farmhouse on this new property and decides to take up vegetable farming. It may be difficult because, as Jean well knows, that particular region was known for long, and at times, devastating droughts. What Jean does not know, however, is that there is a natural spring on his property. With the water this spring provides, Jean could irrigate his crops easily and year-round. But the spring is of no use to Jean because he doesn't know it exists, and he doesn't know it exists because no one tells him. Just prior to Jean's moving to the country, the neighbors on a nearby farm find the spring and decide to plug it up. They purposely keep Jean in the dark in the hopes that his efforts at farming will fail dismally. Once Jean moves back to the city, the neighbors will generously offer to take that useless property off his hands, uncork the spring, 
and make themselves rich by growing carnations on the fertile property. As it turns out, however, Jean was a determined man. Despite a withering drought his first summer there, Jean works himself nearly to death, hauling heavy buckets of water from a well some miles from his farm. Despite his Yale man's efforts, however, Jean fails and we sadly watch as Jean's hopes wither along with his crops. Still not to be outdone, though, Jean goes for broke. Believing that there had to be subterranean water available, he decides to use dynamite to blast out a well. So he lays TNT in a shallow hole not 50 feet from the hidden spring. But after the blast, debris flies everywhere, including a large stone that strikes Jean on the head and kills him. After Jean's widow and daughter move back to the city, the neighbors take over the land and they make themselves exceedingly wealthy. The catechism claims that Jean de Florette's neighbors killed this man. No, they had not shot him, stabbed him, or poisoned him. They had not even lit the fuse on the dynamite whose blast did Jean in. But by their envy, greed, and deception, they had insulted and belittled their neighbor even as they set off the series of calamitous events that resulted in a good and innocent man's death. We see something similar happen in 1 Kings 21, but we'll get to that a bit later, because there is one significant difference. In the story about Jean de Florette, we see some neighbors act viciously toward Jean and his family. After Jean dies, his wife and daughter, who discover the truth, have to decide how they want to react. They are no doubt filled with grief at Jean's death, but also anger and vindictiveness toward their neighbors, who in their envy and hatred set in motion the events that killed Jean. Revenge would be a considerable temptation, I imagine. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, provides some direction here. He writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In short, don't let the roots of murder sink into the fertile ground of your heart. Use the weed killers that Jesus gives us in his Sermon on the Mount. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. These actions are the roundup that kill and prevent envy, hatred, anger, and revenge from taking root in our hearts and growing into insults, mockery, and hatred in thought, word, look, or gesture. This is not to say that justice is to be ignored or overlooked. There is a God-ordained way for justice to be served, but it is not through vigilante justice. It would be wrong for Jean's wife and daughter to seek revenge. What God calls them, and all who are wrong to do, is overcome evil with good. 
God has left the punishment of wrongdoers, the establishing of justice, to the governing authorities. Even though God has established a perpetual year of jubilee through Jesus Christ, whose shed blood was more than sufficient to cover the sins of the entire world, creating a continual today by which sinners can come into God's presence through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, still God has ordained for justice and punishment to be carried out through the governing authorities. As Gilbert Melander says, Paul says, strange as it may seem, we who are taught not to live by the law of retribution where our own interests are concerned, but should rather forgive and show mercy as we have been shown mercy, we also should recognize that government carries out its retributive work as God's servant. As Paul goes on to say, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoers. So Jean's wife and daughter, as hard as it may be, should let aside their desire for revenge and instead do good to their treacherous neighbors. But they don't have to give up hope that those who did wrong to their family will be punished. They can hope that the government will punish those who do wrong. But what happens when the governing authorities are corrupt? What happens when there is no hope of a wrong being righted by those in charge? Or worse, when the governing authorities commit crimes? First Kings chapter 21 explores that conundrum. It is a story similar to that of Jean de Florette, except in this case, it is not a neighbor who through envy and anger kills, but it is the governing authorities themselves who kill. The story takes place in Jezreel. King Ahab has built a winter palace in Jezreel. It is his Mar-a-Lago. There he could escape Samaria, the actual capital. Jezreel served as a retreat for King Ahab. From his winter palace, King Ahab set his sights on his neighbor's vineyard. This vineyard belonged to Naboth. Ahab went to Naboth and said, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. By today's standards, that seems fair enough. In the U.S., states and federal governments can take private land through the use of eminent domain. This legal principle requires the government to pay a fair amount for the land they take. Eminent domain, though, did not exist in ancient Israel. Instead, land was viewed as a gift from God. Land was not something that could be bought or sold. The land belonged to God. Those who resided on it were merely caretakers or stewards. Naboth knew he was not a land speculator, free to buy and sell land that belonged to God. He was only a steward of a small portion of God's land, and it was his responsibility to care for it and pass it on to his children. So Naboth refused King Ahab's offer. Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. This made Ahab angry. He returned to his palace, sullen and angry. When his wife Jezebel discovered why he was so angry, she decided to do what King Ahab could not. Jezebel was from Phoenicia. She did not believe that the land belonged to God. To her, land was a right of the king. If King Ahab wanted it, he should get it. 
So she concocted a plan. She wrote a letter in the king's name, ordering the elders of Jezreel to meet. While they met, two scoundrels would accuse Naboth, one of the elders, of blasphemy. The plan worked. Naboth was accused of blasphemy. He was taken out of the city and stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel learned this, she told Naboth to take the field. Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, she said. He is no longer alive, but dead. Naboth did not delay. He got up and took the land. Ahab envied Naboth. He had a field he wanted. This root grew in his heart. From this root, Naboth was murdered. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, states that governing authorities are servants of God, put in position of power to promote good and punish wrongdoing. But what about when the state murders? When the state does wrong? The rest of the chapter tells how the prophet Elijah confronts King Ahab. It is as if Elijah takes a few verses from Psalm 5. Elijah tells King Ahab, essentially, God takes no pleasure in evil. The wicked cannot dwell in his presence. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. And you, King Ahab, are a deceitful person with blood on your hands. Therefore, Elijah tells King Ahab, his reign will soon come to an end. This remains relevant because the governing authorities still don't always do what is right. While the fifth commandment requires that we honor those in authority over us and be patient with their failings, the sixth commandment, seen through the lens of this passage, allows us to protest injustice in the spirit of Elijah. This is why our contemporary testimony, Our World Belongs to God, states, We call on all governments to do public justice and to protect the rights and freedoms of individuals, groups, and institutions, so that each may do their task. We urge governments and pledge ourselves to safeguard children and the elderly from abuse and exploitation, to bring justice to the poor and oppressed, and to promote the freedom to speak, work, worship, and associate. It is this command that allows us to protest our government's allowance of abortion, Rather than just be patient with their failings, we can and ought to protest this failure by our government. Part of our obedience to the Sixth Commandment includes uprooting any envy, hatred, anger, or revenge that is within us by using the tools Jesus has given us. Loving our neighbors as ourselves, being patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly, protecting our neighbor from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. But part of our obedience to the Sixth Command includes calling on the governing authorities to do what is right, to protect the vulnerable, the unborn, and elderly from harm. Perfect obedience to this command will always remain beyond our best effort. It is too easy to love the neighbors who are easy to love and neglect the difficult ones. And we too easily let our protests at government injustice be through sarcasm, a protest of the weak. But in gratitude for the love Christ has shown us, who was murdered on the cross to pay for our sins, for our anger, hatred, and envy, we ought to try and try again to love as Christ loved us. And while we try and try again, we wait with eager expectations for the return of Christ. As our world belongs to God, as states, on that day we will see our Savior face to face, sacrifice lamb and triumphant king, just and gracious, he will set all things right, judge evil, and condemn the wicked. We face that day without fear, for the judge is our Savior. 
who shed blood declared us righteous. We live confidently, anticipating his coming, offering him, offering him our daily lives, our acts of kindness, our loyalty, and our love, knowing that he will weave even our sins and sorrows into his sovereign purpose. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Thanks for listening. I'll be pausing my series going through the catechism next week. Instead, I'll be preaching on Matthew chapter 14 for a profession of faith service. Thanks. Bye.